So welcome to the first Maiden Voyage edition of Here Comes the Pain. Um, you've got Joel Payne here, your host, and I'm joined by two people that I've been fortunate enough to really get to know um, over these last couple of years of uh, doing a lot of media appearances and um, watching and listening what's happening in our world. Um, I'm joined by the talented and lovely Amisha Cross. Um, Amisha, say hello. And I'm also joined by uh, Sir Michael Singleton, my guy who, by the way, for everybody who wants to know this, my uncle is an avid cable news watcher. And my uncle has told me on several occasions that Sir Michael is his favorite guy on TV. Now, my uncle is a Democrat and he's related to me and still he picks Sir Michael over me. So that's a, that's high praise coming from the Payne family. Sir Michael, say hello. Joel, thank you for having me on your new podcast, my friend, and congratulations. Oh, thank you guys so very much. Um, and, you know, you two were the my choices here for a number of reasons. One, you guys are brilliant, and uh, you're good talkers, and uh, there's a lot to cover. So um, we'll dispense with the preamble, and we'll jump right into it. Um, I want to start talking about the thing that everybody's talking about right now, which, of course, is coronavirus. And... Um, you know, I want to kind of start big picture talking about just how it's impacting uh, particularly our community, um, the African-American communities. We're three African-Americans who work in politics, but um, obviously we're, we're products of the worlds around us. And um, just kind of curious, kind of big picture thoughts. Sure, Michael, I'll start with you just about how this is impacting your world, not necessarily politically, but just the world that you exist in. I mean, Joe, look, I think just to be very transparent with you, like with a lot of other other people, um, it's decreased television. I haven't been on television in, what, two months, I believe. Um, all of my speaking engagements, when I say all of them, Joe, every last one have been canceled. Initially, they were postponed. Now they're all canceled. Uh, and so thankfully, you know, I, I can still survive and be okay. But for a lot of other people, some friends I know, some relatives I know, that isn't the case. A lot of people are out here struggling, man. And so I'm blessed enough to be in a position where I have other other individuals in my life that have enabled me to do other things um, as a means to make up for that loss of income. But not everyone has that at their disposal. Uh, and, and I'm not saying this, again, merely from what I've read on television. I'm saying this from family members I know and from friends I know who are just really, really struggling right now. And so... I think one of the biggest things for me right now is to try and figure out what I would like to see is how we can continue to do something to sustain people because that's necessary while also trying to figure out, Joe, what aspects of the economy that can be open in a reasonable and safe way. And, and, and notice how I said what aspects. I didn't say everything. I said, but what things can be open so that we can increase productivity, get people back to work while also keeping them safe. And I think we have to be able to do all of those things simultaneously. Absolutely. No, I, and look, I, I completely feel you. I mean, you haven't been on TV in two months. That's about the same for me. Now I'm gonna kick it over to Amisha because, you know, Sher Michael, she's still a superstar. So I still see her, her mug on TV every day. Um, <laughs> but, but I know, I know Amisha, you've felt the impact as well. Tell me a little bit about how, how coronavirus is impacting you. 
Absolutely. So as you know, Joel, um, I'm a native Chicagoan, South Side representing, and my community, South Shore, uh, which is also home <coughs> to or was home to the former First Lady Michelle <coughs> Obama, is the hardest hit community in the entire city of Chicago with the most deaths and the toll keeps rising. Um, for me, it is reaching back to my family and knowing that the majority of them still live there. The majority of them are seeing this every day. Uh, my brother actually just tested positive for COVID-19 last week. So um, there's a lot of monitoring, wait and see approaches, um, trying to see what's happening within, within the city and the city's regulations around it. Um, in addition to the fact that I come from a family who's largely a lot of frontline workers, not only uh, many nurses, but also people who are doing the, the Uber driving or, um, or, or working in, in the grocery stores and things like that. So there are individuals who are, you know, working to keep food on the table and to pay their rent, but are also very frustrated by, in many cases, the lack of understanding that some have in terms of coming to these areas without wearing masks or their sheer disregard for a lot of the regulations we're seeing. And I think that, you know, that impact in terms of the social emotional aspect of things is there as well, because to be honest, there's a lot of fear that I have for, um, for, for my cousins, for my siblings who are, you know, working the front lines in this and literally seeing a lot of people get sick and honestly, a lot of people die every day. No, I think that's right. And well, first off, and I know I speak for Shemichael in saying this, we're sending the best to your family. I'm so sorry to hear about your brother and uh, we'll be praying for yeah, a speedy recovery for him. Um, you know, guys, just before I jumped on um, this conversation with you, um, I, I may have told both of you this, but I had an uncle who um, I was very close to who I lost, not to COVID, but um, he was ill with the pre-existing condition. He had lung cancer and we did a virtual memorial for him. And, um, you know, it's just so jarring to see the world that we're in today. The fact that you, you have to do that. The funeral home wouldn't allow more than eight people. You know, we're a family of my dad has 14 siblings. Um, we've got a hundred family members, so it's just painful. And I know my story and the story that I speak is just a, it, it's just a small picture of what so many people are dealing with and um so uh you know we we know also that this has just a tremendous health on a, a tremendous impact rather on mental health and so um, i'm hopeful you guys are, are staying um well in that regard as well um i want to pivot a little bit and talk about kind of what the three of us do professionally um you know in the political space and just talk about kind of the impact of COVID 19 um on not just, you know, the, the world, but the political world, um, specifically 2020. We are in the middle of a hotly contested presidential race. Um, Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee. Obviously, Donald Trump is the incumbent. Um, Joe Biden has been relegated to doing media hits from his basement. Um, the president, um, you would have thought, had the incumbency advantage by having the bully pulpit of the White House, but that was actually hurting him politically because he was so undisciplined with his message. Um, up until the last few weeks. Give me a high-level 30,000-foot picture of how you think coronavirus will play in the 2020. Who does it advantage? Who does it disadvantage? And how how do, how do how is this going to impact how Americans are choosing um, our next leader? Amisha, why don't we start with you? Absolutely. So, you know, 
absolutely. And I think that that's the million dollar question, to be honest. Coronavirus has changed America as we know it. And there couldn't have been a more pivotal time to watch these changes play out than during a presidential election. We all know that presidential elections are the ones that bring the most people out when they get all the attention, all the news and all of the, the rallies and the excitement with a cast of doubt being shed on so many people in terms of um, we're watching more and more primaries get pushed. We're watching um, we're watching the stage of campaigning not only at the federal level in terms of the presidential, but also the down ballot races. People cannot get out. And for a culture that is so used to pressing the flesh, that is so used to having those rallies or those you know big ticket fundraisers and those events that bring people to you to help people to understand not only your mes message, but you as an individual, it becomes a whole lot harder when all of that is digitized. The secondary to that is that the majority of our electorate in terms of those who actually get people in office are older individuals. Those individuals aren't necessarily the most in, the most apt when it comes to um, doing things digitally. So now we run the risk of campaigns isolating typically the people who come out and vote and support them on both sides of the aisle because those individuals aren't the folks who are going to be rushing to Twitter or rushing, rushing to see your, your Zoom interviews or anything like that. They're not the ones who follow YouTube channels. So it is trying to get that population more adept to this technology that we are forced to use right now because you're not able to um, campaign in the traditional sense, but also to consistently be able to get people to follow and pay attention. I think that at this point, for those who are like President Trump, who benefited greatly, I think, from, from the rallies, that is, that, that is where he shines the most, it is a very difficult time when you're not able to do that. For Joe Biden, who, to be honest, not many people were coming to his rallies to begin with, this may actually be somewhat helpful, but it is keeping people engaged and helping people to stay informed and, you know, just have that energy up from now through November when, to be honest, a lot of folks are just focused on keeping their jobs if they still have it post-COVID. Also, kitchen table type issues. Schools are out right now. A lot of parents have their children at home. Actually, most parents have their children at home. I think it's managing all of those things and being cognizant of those factors, meanwhile, trying to run a presidential campaign at the same time. This isn't only difficult for those who are, you know, uh, Trump and Biden. It's also very difficult for a lot of the campaign advisors and the surrogates and those who typically would be helping along the campaign trail right now, because this is a new normal for them as well. We've, we've had internet, we've had the capability of social media to be a part of campaigns now for at least two, possibly two and a half major cycles um, at the presidential level. However, we've never seen it where you had to devote all of your, all of your campaign to all things digital. And I think that this is changing the game for campaigns moving forward. I honestly don't believe that we will ever go back to campaigning as usual because this, is, this will be our new normal for a while. Sure, Michael. I want to bring you in here. Yeah, go go for it. Go, feel free. Jump off that. Yeah. yeah no, I, I just look. I, I want to say. I mean, I definitely understand what Amisha was, uh, was saying and agree with some of what she said. I, I think looking at this from a thirty thousand foot level, I think Donald Trump has an advantage, and I say that solely based on the significant steps his reelection campaign has made or uh, have made since excuse me since he have been in the white house since he was elected they never stopped campaigning they continued to bolster their digital presence particularly uh, on uh, facebook uh, where facebook allows you to do 
incredible micro-targeting and macro-targeting based on zip codes, based on interest race, and a whole lot of other variables. They are significantly ahead. When you look at Joe Biden's campaign, they could barely get a live feed going without there being disadvantages. That's just the reality. And I, I think you take that coupled with the eagerness and excitement of Trump supporters versus Biden supporters and who are mostly older, who are not as digitally savvy as, as some of Trump's supporters, uh, I think Biden has a problem. Now, I understand and recognize that he's hoping that uh, the right running mate will help bolster his campaign, but I'm just not certain if that alone will be enough to assist Biden, who, Joe, you know, I personally like him, but I have to be honest. When I watch some of his interviews, when I watch some of his Twitter live events, I watch and observe someone who I seriously question, is this guy capable of handling this position under stress? I'm not certain that he is. And so I, I think when you assess his campaign versus Trump, where the excitement and eagerness has never really waned, his approval with Republicans, had, I don't believe it's dropped any lower than 87%. I think right now it's still around 89 or 90%. And you look at someone like Biden, who is struggling, who is struggling to build a strong coalition around himself within the Democratic Party. I think you're looking at uh, an incumbent who, though unpopular, has an advantage sheerly by based on the uh, by based on the excitement coming from his base of supporters versus that of Joe Biden. And so I, I, I just don't know if. If you're looking at this two months from now and things start to reopen and candidates are able to go out and start hosting rallies again, who's excited to go to a Joe Biden rally? I don't know too many people. Who, who's going to wait hours in a line to see Joe Biden? I don't know too many people. But I know thousands of people who wait in line for a whole day to see Donald Trump. And those were metrics that we didn't really consider or factor in significantly in campaigns in the past. I think 2016 uh, taught us Otherwise, and so I, I think the digital advantage Trump has, I think a Trump campaign continue continuously targeting uh, their voters and new potential voters via Facebook, utilizing Facebook's impeccable data analytics processing system uh, in comparison to what I have seen from Joe Biden. I think Biden's folks are weak, and I think Trump's folks have an advantage. And I think this particular moment, despite some of Trump's pitfalls, I really think this is a moment that helps Trump more than it does Biden. This is interesting. You know, Sir Michael, so I actually you agree with Sir Michael for partially, particularly as it relates to, um, to, to the campaign structure. I do think that President Trump has, by and large, been able to take advantage of a, a digital presence that, to be honest, he had grown significantly long before COVID-19. Um, his, his team noticed how effective he could be in that space, and I think that that kind of boiled over into this process. And... I, for the, the life of me, do not understand why Biden's team, which is also a lot of younger people, um, has not necessarily adapted as quickly as they should have to this level of social media engagement. But I would say that we have to also look at the fact there's an incumbency advantage in general for <coughs> President Trump. But beyond that, we are also looking at states that are bleeding when it comes to job loss. And that's going to continue on through November. Illinois, for example, my home state, is set to lose over 200,000 jobs by June alone. 
there is nothing that is going to stop that from happening. We have more than double that for the state of California. And then we cross it's over a, into it's areas it's like it's Mississippi, Alabama. I don't think that a President Trump, who does not have an active plan of action to get the economy back going, right now we're in a depression state when it comes to our economy. So we're not Whoever we're not is not going to walk in in November is going to have to be able to so this is and be able to have a plan that's going to set America back on track. That's what people are going so to So this is interesting. I want to I want to jump in. Hey, Sir Michael, real real quick and I want to I want to let you respond there. But Sir Michael, you and I've had a number of conversations talking about um, why Biden needed to be the candidate that Democrats went with. And one of the things that you have repeatedly consistently told me is because he is the only one of those major Democratic candidates that can appeal to Republicans. It sounds like what you're what you're talking about is an enthusiasm argument for Biden. What are your thoughts related to how Republicans, maybe those nervous, sometimes Trumpers, maybe even folks like yourself who uh, still believe in report Republican orthodoxy, but can't ride with Donald Trump. How do you think they respond to Biden in this moment? I mean, look, I, as I stated, I've talked to many Republicans across the country, uh, from everyday folks to Republicans who are, who are leading organizations. Some of them are leading organizations that are anti-Trump organizations, and some uh, leading organizations that are friendly Trump, but they don't necessarily completely align themselves uh, to the president's agenda on every front. And a lot of them are concerned about Joe Biden. There was there there were some initial excitement about him, particularly when he began to do well in the primary process. Uh, that perhaps you know he would sort of be a a center left candidate. So, so perhaps he would adapt some moderate positions. And now as we get it's appearing that he's sort of partnering with AOC, the AOCs of the world. That concerns a lot of uh, Republicans who believe uh, many of her ideas are too far to the front. I think that honestly would are ar- arguably concern some independent voters. I-, I think there are a number of more recent concerns about Joe Biden that did not exist at that time several months ago that I believe exist now. And I also think watching him more and more under pressure, how he's handled certain situations that have arisen recently. A lot of people are concerned about that, some, some of those moderate Republicans. And so I think people are, are sort of beginning to ask themselves, can this guy really cross the finish line, number one? And number two, who does he choose as his running mate? Does he choose someone who's more of a moderate Democrat, or does he go the, the route of choosing someone who is progressive? I think that's also going to have a heavy impact. And I think if he chooses someone who's heavily progressive while also adapting more or adopting more progressive leaning positions, I do believe he's going to lose a lot of moderate Republicans and a lot of moderate leaning Republican independents who may indeed vote again for President Trump. Now, if I can, I want to respond to something that Misha said about President Trump and the economy. We're not in a depression yet. Uh, unemployment rate, though it's arrived, I think 14.7.6% uh, nationally. Uh, when you quantify that, compare that to the overall number of people who are in, who work, uh, we're not quite there. I, I think we still have maybe six or seven percentage points because it, during the Great Depression at the highest, it was 24, 25%. We're not at that point yet. We still have quite a few to go. We're certainly in a recession, and I would obviously acknowledge that. Now the question becomes, who can hit the ground running on day one to restart the economy. Now, to be fair here, I am not necessarily certain that Joe Biden can do that. 
uh, from the position that I have heard and have read from Joe Biden, he believes we need to continue to have the government shut down. I don't know how you're going to restart an economy while everything's closed. I haven't heard from Joe Biden a potential plan to say, well, this is how we're going to reopen certain sectors of the economy. Now, to Trump's credit, and I am certainly not a Trump fanboy, but to his credit, I do know that his administration is starting to look at how do we open up certain things because productivity is significantly down. And if we don't do something sooner rather than later, then we will, to Amisha's point, find ourselves in a depression. Now, Sir Michael. And that's something that will certainly outlast COVID-19. Sir Michael, and Amisha, I want to get you back in here in a second. But Sir Michael, I'm chuckling here because I remember all of these conversations that you and I have had, gosh, at least for the last year talking about Joe Biden and I've said something to you and it's a quote that I have repeated on television. I've repeated to you several times and this is why Democrats cannot build a strategy to win the white house around pulling over nervous Trump voters. And this is why. Okay. Because I worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 and we did the same thing. We said, we're going to pull people. We're going to go after Utah. We're going to go after Arizona. We're going to, we're going to appeal to the middle. We're going to talk about Trump's character and what happened. Trump got disciplined for three weeks at the end of the race. And Republicans held their nose and they voted for him because they never wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton. And I'm going to make an argument that Republicans have never really wanted to vote for Joe Biden. They really want to vote for Donald Trump. They just want Donald Trump to stop acting like Donald Trump. And if they can get him to stop doing that for long enough to forget that he's Donald Trump, they're going to vote for him. Which is why I would never, as a Democratic strategist in this environment, I would never build an electoral strategy around that. Amisha, I'd love your response to that. What What is this, just hearing kind of Shermichael's thought process here, how does this make you think about how Democrats have to approach this election cycle? How Democrats have to approach this election cycle is that they have to make sure they are turning out Democratic voters, make sure that they are turning out Democratic voters across multiple demographics. I'm a lot less interested in their appeals to conservatives who I believe you are 100% spot on aren't going to vote for Biden or anybody else who was on the Democratic ticket. Um, that this is not going to happen. I think that, you know, these are individuals who are by and large conservative who would vote conservative regardless of who the person's name was at the top of that ticket. And I don't think that there's anything a Democrat can do to change that. I am more concerned with Joe Biden being able to align Democrats who did not come out for Hillary Clinton. I'm more concerned with him being able to double the number of women participating. I'm concerned with him being able to double the number of Latinos participating. I am interested in him being able to get into the South where we know that there are a ton of black voters who are active in the primaries who don't necessarily show up the same way in a presidential. I'm very interested in seeing what that looks like. I think that building that coalition and making sure that you get out as many Democratic voters across that large umbrella, that large tip that we have, we're able to see those people show up. So, Amisha, I think you've kind of put a good break point in our conversation just talking about uh, kind of broadly about 2020. And I want to transition it, still talking about 2020, but um, jump into a a different issue related to the Biden campaign. And I'd like to start with you here, Amisha. Um, The Tara Reid... Um, allegations against the former vice president. Um, 
those kind of reached a crescendo point, I'd say, over the last two to three weeks. Um, she did an interview with Megyn Kelly. Um, you know, the Biden campaign has responded vigorously. The former vice president was on Morning Joe talking about um, the allegations, refuting them. Um, he's had a number of people who were on his staff at the time that Reid worked in Biden's Senate office who've refuted it. Um, there are questions about the inconsistencies in Reid's story. Um, there's also an inconsistency with how Democrats, frankly, have responded to this than how they responded to uh, the situation with Brett Kavanaugh as he was being considered for the Supreme Court. And so I, I present this to you, Amisha, to say just, you know, how has the Biden team handled this? Have they have they managed this discussion around Tara Reid the right way? Um, is there more that they have to do to really put this issue to bed? Absolutely. I, mean, I think that the more that Tara Reid speaks, the choice of her doing it with Megyn Kelly was interesting. But the more that she speaks, the more questions people actually have, and rightfully so. Not in terms of legitimizing her claims, because her story has been consistently inconsistent, but more so looking at the response from the Biden camp. And as someone who is, is a Biden supporter, I find it very interesting that the response from the campaign has Originally, um, if there was no response whatsoever, and that lasted for way too long. After that, it was hypey short denials. And I, I think that at this point, the, the push to move forward, to eradicate this, to move along, to, you know, throw Terry to the side, um, I, I think that to a certain extent, their response has been lackluster. Yes, Biden has been someone who has stood out and has been in support of the Violence Against Women Act. He authored it. He's someone who has steadily talked about and been a forward-leaning face when it came to um, sexual violence and sexual assault against women throughout his career. And I think that that in and of itself makes this dichotomy very interesting for media fodder. But there really isn't too much legitimacy or things that you can point to that could uphold her claims. With that being said, I think that Biden... Biden's response was late. It needed to be stronger. And then you wrap this thing up and keep it moving. Republicans went from expecting that there would be some uh, some socialists elected, some socialists who would become um, the, the, the primary victor, to now finding more and more things that they feel like they can attack Biden on. And I think that this was something that was fuel to the fire for them. But thus far, it has fizzled out in many ways, and largely fizzling out because of Tara Reid's own storytelling or lack of storytelling ability and things that just aren't consistent. Like the fact that she supported Biden when he ran as vice president in late in 2012. She's even come out as recent as 2017 in support of Biden, specifically talking about his leveraging points and how happy she was that he stood out when it came to violence against women, particularly in sexual assault and sexual abuse cases. So it's very interesting that now, you know, how many years later um, that she would come out and she would say something in a different direction. Again, most people who've been victims of abuse don't sing their praises. That's just not something that happens. So there are a lot of questions around Tara Reid and her comments and her behavior over the past few years, but also her timing. Who she chooses to have as her lawyer, um, with his connection to the Trump to the Trump administration and being a Trump donor, in addition to, again, just there being some major inconsistencies with her story to begin with. I do think that the Biden campaign could have done a better job in terms of their forcefulness when it came to dismantling this, but also still falling back on the importance of the Me Too movement and having and having people who feel that they've been victimized step up and step forward. To be honest, I think that Biden spoke too late and that that's probably going to hunt him. 
Shermichael, I want to pull you back in here. Um, I have a theory that I wanted to ponder with you, okay? I think that there is an assumption because Donald Trump was elected president after the revelations about um, some of the terrible things he said on that that bus with Billy Bush and um, some of his misdeeds, and I don't mean to minimize them by saying misdeeds, but they ranged from criminal to, um, to moral. Um, you know, some of his misdeeds um, were revealed. He still was able to gain support of a majority of Republican women and, gosh, almost, what, 40 percent, I believe, more than 40 percent of women in the electorate um, yeah. overall. And so I have a theory. I think that we assume that because Trump was essentially given a permission slip because of his bad behavior, that Biden will be given the same leeway. And my theory is, is that we're confusing Republican women and Democratic women. Republican women have said they do not feel quite this, you know, as strongly about the accusations against Donald Trump, or they might believe them, but they maybe just don't care as much. I don't believe we've heard that from Democratic women. And I think that that's the real problem that Biden has here is that his base, his base support of women are not going to give him the same leeway. I'm curious as to your thoughts about that. I think that's a legitimate point. Uh, I mean, from, from my perspective, I think Joe Biden, I think Democrats writ large have really boxed themselves in as it pertains to Me Too and, and all of these movements that they have started. Believe women no matter what. Just immediately believe that's ridiculous to me in America. People have a presumption of innocence. That's why we have a judicial process. That's why Lady Liberty is blinded because justice is supposed to be fair and balanced. Uh, and I think those chickens are coming home to roost. And I agree with Anisha, the Biden campaign did not handle this very well. And I have a feeling, and I may be wrong, but I have seen this game before. I got a feeling this isn't over yet. Uh, I think Biden has benefited uh, from COVID-19 constantly cover, uh, running the, the news cycle. But when that changes and this comes up again, I think Biden's going to have a problem. He's going to have a real problem. I think that people may begin to demand that he release documents from the University of Delaware, from his Senate uh, uh, tenure. That could become an issue. We have no clue what other things may be out there. And so this is something that if I was advising Biden, I would be concerned about. Yeah, you, you were able to get away with it this time. Uh, but what happens when the news cycle is back to some level of normalcy? One interview won't cut it. And so I, I think that for a lot of Democratic voters, particularly Democratic women voters, who strongly believe in this notion that women should always be believed, some of them may not be satisfied with Joe Biden's response. I, I think the response was as good as it could get for someone like him. Um, but I certainly think it left a lot wanted. And I think when this comes up again, because it will, and it's more of a focal point, more people are able to pay attention, I think it's going to be a serious problem for him, particularly with a lot of younger white progressive women who have really sort of taken the charge of the whole women first movement. So, yeah, I, I do think this is, is going to be a problem, Joel, and it certainly is very different. Uh, the processing, that is, of how white Democratic female voters think in comparison to white Republican female voters. How do you think, Sir Michael, that the Trump campaign will leverage this? And again, considering the fact that the president himself has his own vulnerabilities in the space, and you've, you've, I think you gave a good dissertation on why, again, Republican women will excuse him, but maybe Democratic women may not excuse 
Biden, but just, um, you know, Donald Trump is kind of a purveyor of virtue in terms of behavior towards women. Um, that's, that is a hard pill to swallow. And so I'm curious, do you think that Trump will go there? Well, okay, let me back up. We know Trump will go there. Will he be able to effectively go there and actually impact the race in a real way related to Tara Reid? Well, I think it's possible. I, I don't think as it pertains to Republican voters, they know who Donald Trump is. I don't think that's going to really impact uh, people who support him one way or the other. But what he could potentially do uh, is raise some serious doubt in the minds of a certain percent of Democratic voters uh, who may not necessarily be eager to vote for Biden, but they may say, well, I dislike Trump and I want him gone, so I'm going to vote for Biden. But if this is constantly being put before them and they see Biden struggling to properly respond to this and answer challenging questions, then I think some of those women may stay home. Or I think you could see a 2016 where some of these voters, uh, what, a million or two million of them vote for someone like a Joe Stein again. I mean, this is a serious problem uh, for, for Joe Biden and for Democrats. And, and, and early on, I really thought Joe was the best candidate for Democrats. But I have to tell you, Joe, I've spoken to a lot of other friends, people like you who are on the other side who are saying, man, you know, if we would have known this stuff, we probably would have tried to go with somebody else. And I think there's going to be a lot of buyer's remorse if this, again, comes back to the forefront, which I suspect it will. The Trump folks play dirty. They play to win by any means necessary. Hell, Republicans, generally speaking, play to win by any means necessary. And I think that's going to undercut Joe Biden. Amisha, one last thing on this topic before we move on to kind of our final uh, part of the discussion uh, related to the VP search. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from you guys about that. But I want to talk one more thing here. Um, you've heard a lot of Democratic women be very vocal um, in their support for Joe Biden and really defending Biden against these accusations. Elizabeth Warren, um, Stacey Abrams, uh, you know, um, former Michigan governor Jennifer Granholm, um, among many prominent elite Democratic women who've spoken out and they've really put themselves out there in a way where if there is anything that comes off inconsistent um, related to, uh, you know, related to Biden's story here, it's going to be a real problem for these women to kind of walk back their support. Just briefly, just kind of give me your kind of response there related to how vocal they've been and whether or not that's a political risk for those those Democratic women who've spoken out in support of Biden. Absolutely. I refer to this as the Emily's List Brigade. Um, they all kind of aligned around Biden immediately after the allegations um, had an uptick. As you can recall, originally the allegations were not as intense and didn't actually include a, a sexual assault, and then they did. So I think that there was a belief that if you have Jennifer Granholm, if you have Stacey Abrams, if you have um, if you have all of all of the women basically who've been considered as potential VP picks, we've got Gretchen Whitmer, we've got literally every woman who ran um, who ran against him in the primary. They have come out in support of Joe Biden, and I think that. One of the reasons that this happens goes back to Sher Michael's point earlier. There is a strong recognition that particularly younger white um, females who are more progressive are extremely bothered by this and are very vocal about it. And they think that that branch of the party, Democrats cannot afford to lose in November. So there is a move by women, because when women speak, other women listen. 
There's a move by women to showcase that they have a belief in Joe Biden. They have belief in his character. They have belief in his uh, his moral compass. That this couldn't possibly be something that he would do. To your point, and I don't, I personally don't think that there's going to be anything to come out of this. If there was anything that casts a shadow of doubt on Joe Biden's firm, you know, push against um, push against the accusations. This would hurt those women. And I think that by and large, it hurts them in general, also being the women who stood out in support of Me Too. Me Too, for many, has been a double-edged sword. And as somebody who supports the movement, as someone who's been sexually harassed at work, um, I understand the focal point of the movement. However, I think that to a certain extent, it might have gone too far. And with that being said, now we are in a position where there is a automatic belief that if any woman anywhere says that she was abused, says that someone, you know, looked at her dress and said something inappropriately, all of a sudden we come running with our pitchforks. That's a problematic society to be in. And I think that for those women who have spoken out, those women who are who are mainstay of the Democratic Party. They're great fundraisers. They're people who you want to see when you're running. They're people who you want to endorse you. They're people who have names that matter in the party. It means something to have them come out and say, this did not happen. Wonderful. I can understand why Joe Biden, if you don't, in many cases, you know, he hasn't been the best at speaking for himself on this. It has helped to elevate the conversation and has eased some of the tensions for women who were probably going to vote for him and ignored these allegations to begin with. I'm not so sure that it has caused any bit of movement for women who are cautious, particularly, again, those young progressive women who are cautious about Joe Biden at this point. Okay, well, look, I want to move us to the final part of our discussion here. And again, I'm just very appreciative of the time you guys are giving me today. Thank you so much. I want to talk about the VP search. Okay, and um, I want to tell you the three things I want to talk about here. One, does it have to be a black woman? We know that former Vice President Biden has said it will be a woman. We know that African-Americans are the reason why he won South Carolina, which launched him to become the presumptive nominee. So does it have to be a black woman? Um, is it possible that a non-woman of color candidate might be better for African-Americans, uh, for people of color in terms of having their agenda represented? In other words, would it be better to have an Elizabeth Warren as opposed to a Kamala Harris in terms of having your issues at the table being addressed the right way? And finally, I want to talk specifically around Stacey Abrams and how she's handled the spotlight. And I have some pretty strong takes about um, how I think she's mishandled this moment and how she's really struggled uh, to, to, to stand out here and has really kind of fumbled the opportunity to rise above. But why don't we deal with the first two issues first? Um, does it have to be a, a black woman? And is it possible that a non-black woman might be better for people of color? Sure, Michael, let's start with you. I mean, look, I think it absolutely has to be a black woman. I don't see how you do this and not be a black woman. And I do believe that a black woman would have the best interest of black people first. Um, that's just something that I strongly believe. And I think that if you're Joe Biden, you need to supercharge your base. That's what Trump did. That's, the, that's why he won. He supercharged them. It doesn't make any sense to me to choose a white person and take the risk of minimizing the number of African-Americans African -Americans that will turn out versus saying even if it gets us an additional three, four, five percent, that will make a significant difference um, 
in some swing states where Trump only won by 30,000 votes, 40,000 votes, 50,000 votes. Is it possible, Sir Michael, that um, having, yeah, I, I take your point politically, and I, I think I tend to agree with you that probably Biden is boxed in to where he's got to have a person of color on there just to be represented um, on the ticket. But is it possible that Elizabeth Warren and the agenda that she put, the very robust agenda that she put forward related to African-American voters, that she might be better than, say, uh, Val Demings or Stacey Abrams or Kamala Harris? Is that possible? No, uh, no, 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 not to me. I don't see why the white woman can do something that the black woman can't. I, I mean, that, that's just like some white bullcrap narrative. I don't, I don't subscribe to that at all. I think they could put forth the same policy even better because they're black women who have black husbands, well, at least Al Dimmons does, Kamala's a little different, uh, but she has experiences with a lot of black men. Uh, they understand what impacts the African-American community far better than a white person could ever, ever, ever understand. I don't care how great Elizabeth Warren's attentions are. She is a white woman and will always be a white woman, and we should not lose sight of that. And that is not to say she is not a decent human being who doesn't really care about doing the right thing, but I certainly would... I, I certainly, in this case, if I were to compare her, particularly to someone like a Val Demings, who I actually personally really like uh, as a potential running mate for Vice Pre former Vice President Biden, I would personally go with her. I would opt for her as it pertains to the interests of African Americans any day over Elizabeth Warren. Amisha, want to get you in here. What, what do you think related to those questions I just asked? Absolutely. Is another option for Joe Biden as a VP other than a black woman. Not only because of the South Carolina win, but because of the blowout across the South in general, um, because of what we saw happen across the Midwest. Because black people literally turned his campaign around and pulled it off of life support. If it wasn't for black people, specifically black women, because the numbers and droves of black women that came out and supported Joe Biden are amazing. Um, they were more than double what we saw for Hillary Clinton. We have to make sure that I think for black women, there's a sense of we don't just always show up for the Democratic Party, yet the Democratic Party never shows up for us. This is a time for Joe Biden to really showcase that, that thank you, other than just standing in front of a crowd and saying it. People actually want to feel included and involved. And there are so many qualified black women who would be great at that role. And I actually agree with Shermichael here because to Elizabeth Warren's credit, yes, I think that she did have a strong plan for African-Americans broadly. However, that entire plan was devised by black women. There isn't a single person who is a non-black character in this, in this race thus far who would be someone who would be able to understand intrinsically the black experience. The only reason why a lot of these policy frameworks come out and black people give them kudos is simply because the people who spoke them into existence who literally wrote them, were also black people. Why choose a candidate as a vice presidential pick who relies on black people, but not the black person who you could have chosen? I think that that would result in a much larger backlash among black, black voters, and that we cannot take the black vote for granted. Just because Joe Biden's at the ticket and because African Americans by and large do not support Donald Trump does not mean that if Joe Biden chooses a VP that black people do not support or do not agree with, they will show up in November. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, I've written a lot about this, that the road to the Democratic nomination runs right through black America. And it's different than it's been in the past, because it's not just that, Dem that Democrats are along for the ride. Democrats are the engine to the car. 
They are they are literally um, the the kind of last um, part of the Democratic coalition that hasn't given up on the party. And so I think that you, the, the points you guys are making belies that. Um, I know we've got to run here real quick. Shermichael, I want to get you in and then we'll go to Amisha. Um, real quick, I want to talk about Stacey Abrams. Just your thoughts on her candidacy and um, maybe where that candidacy is at the moment. I mean, Joel, I, <laughs> I like Stacey Abrams. She went to Spelman. I went to Morehouse. The woman is a Yale law graduate. Yale is an incredibly difficult school to get into for law school. Uh, and for any other discipline for that matter, but certainly law school. With that said, I do not like the fact that it appears that Stacey Abrams is begging for this job. I don't like it. It bothers me uh, significantly. Uh, I don't think Stacey Abrams has a large enough base of supporters to justify selecting her as a vice president. I think she could be appointed to something, absolutely. Uh, but certainly not a running mate. I think when you're looking for a running mate, you need someone who has already sort of proven themselves potentially on a national stage. Val Demings would be a little different, but I think the argument for her would be that she comes from Florida, a critical state where Hillary Clinton only lost by 100,000 votes. Uh, Miami is a critical area, large minority population there. So I think that's a separate argument. But for Abrams, I'm, I'm just disappointed the way she handled herself. I, I think she is being overly eager and it's really coming off bad. And I, and I don't want to say anything to be negative about her because again, I think the world of her, I've met her multiple times. She is a brilliant, brilliant black woman. But I just think she needs to change her tactics on this. Station talking about Stacey Abrams here. She's a very um, talented candidate, obviously, um, ran a very inspiring race in Georgia, was able to build mass popular support, build a national effort, and has become a national voice. Um, but I feel very strongly that Stacey Abrams has uh, really blown this opportunity um, to show herself as the right type of uh, partner for Joe Biden to, to run for the White House with. And it's not because she's eager for the job. It's OK that she's eager for the job. I'm sure Elizabeth Warren's eager for the job. I'm sure Amy Klobuchar is eager for the job. I'm sure Kamala Harris and Val Demings and so on and so forth. They're all eager for the job. But it's how you express that. And I know Stacey Abrams has talked a lot about how she feels like black women um, don't often get heard and are unseen. And that is a good point. But I do not believe she has handled this moment well. When you look at the very ham handed way that she's gone after, um, you know, being Biden's choice, um, some of the very. Um, I would I would say very clumsy um, rollouts that she's had over the last couple of weeks. She has been campaigning for this job for a month and just within the last week decided to endorse Joe Biden. Her team didn't realize that she had already she had she had she had forgotten to endorse Joe Biden as she's publicly campaigning for the job. Um, it says to me more about the people around Stacey than Stacey herself, who, again, is talented, brilliant and has a limitless political future. Um, but this has been a really disappointing moment to see how she's handled this spotlight because I think she entered this as a clear top three candidate, and I think she's an afterthought at this moment. Uh, Amisha, um, I know that was a lot of wind-up there. Curious as to your thoughts about Stacey Abrams and, uh, and, and the type of um, campaign that she's run, very public campaign she's run for the vice presidency. 
absolutely. And and I thank you for that intro. I have supported St. Abrams for a long time. I think that she is probably one of the most brilliant minds that we have in American politics today. I'm a huge supporter of Fair Fight and the work that she's doing to make sure that every person's vote counts and that ballot access is available to you regardless of your income level or the color of your skin. Work that should have been done in this country years ago. We should be past this point, but alas, we are still fighting for equal access today. All of that being said, Stacey Abrams has greatly dis- disappointed me in her approach to becoming a vice presidential pick. And I say that with all due respect to her because she was already on the list. The, the enraging part about this is that it wasn't that Stacey Abrams had to go above and beyond to get noticed. She was already being noticed for the work that she did in Georgia, for a race that would have been hers, for everything that she has done since that race ended. She has made herself a national figure. And I think that along with that came a lot of national praise, adoration, and the understanding that with her, she brings a certain, not only demographic, but well beyond just African-American voters, because she's beloved by women in the movement in general, as well as men. But I think that she, her campaign took a desperate call. They have decided that they were going to basically uh, go by any means necessary of almost groveling at every every term, be it whether it's online and social media, to all of the interviews that she's done on, on The View, on CNN, on MSNBC, wherever they'll have her, and basically put herself out there as the one to be chosen. That's problematic. One, because in this country, we've never seen anybody actively campaign for vice president. That is literally a selection that is done by the presumed presidential nominee, not necessarily somebody who, not, you don't stage your own campaign for it. So that's, that's been an interesting take in general. But I also think, to be honest, even if this level of campaigning hadn't happened, her positioning as a potential vice presidential pick would have tanked anyway because of COVID-19. I think that COVID-19 has placed a very different type of look into who your vice presidential pick should be, not only because this person has to help rebuild the economy, but also to restore faith in a lot of the institutions and infrastructure that have since been diminished because of Donald Trump's presidency. That person is more than likely going to be somebody with federal experience, which Stacey Abrams just does not have. Misha, I think those are some fantastic points you bring up. And look, it gives me no pleasure to, to bring this up in this way because um, I can't think of any you know African-American and really any Democrat that wishes nothing but the best for her politically. But it's been disappointing as a political pro for me to witness this, um, to see her really um, struggle in this moment. And again, it feels to me more like a failing of the people around her. You know, a lot of times what folks don't realize is the best Um, public figures and elected officials have the best people around them that advise them well. It feels like Stacey Abrams has gotten some poor advice in this moment. And uh, I I think um, our observations um, here reflect that. Um, We are all but out of time. I want to thank my good friends and uh, brilliant friends, uh, Amisha Cross and Sir Michael Singleton. Thank you so very much for joining me. Uh, Thank you all for listening to the first episode of here comes the pain my new podcast look out for uh more information about the next we've got some great guests lined up coming up in the next uh, couple weeks to help folks get through this content desert uh here that we're all dealing with with COVID 19 thank you so much god bless
Thank you.